On the evening of that day, uh, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, for uh, our church. And we uh, thank you for these words from our Lord. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, teach them to us, apply them into our communities, our life, our individual lives. And and, uh, Lord, we pray that you'd give us both faith and obedience as we uh, hear your word. And so we open our hearts to you now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, our topic uh, today is the mission of the church, and which I think is an important, timely topic uh, for us as a church. Of course, uh, over this past year, we've had to put things on hold as a church. A year ago, I mean, we pretty much had to start over rebuilding our church. And I know for me, one of my uh, life goals for the year was just still be a pastor at the end of COVID. And we're almost there. We're doing all right. We're doing fine. And I know that sounds dramatic, but it's been, you know, it's been a trial uh, for the church. And actually COVID has come in the midst of a time when the church was already in steep decline in our society. Some of you have probably seeing those statistics that just came out. There's a study that said that for the first time in American history, uh, less than half of Americans are a member of a church. And of course, we live in a part of the country where far less than 50% of people are, are members of churches. And so there's a tremendous amount of, of kingdom work to do. Um, but I think also right now, because of the pandemic, many people's lives have been shaken up, unsettled, uh, you know, because of isolation and fear and anxiety, I think probably a lot of people are thinking about things in their lives, maybe asking spiritual questions and be open to the gospel. And I think it's an important time for us as a church to just take a deep breath. And I think especially as we look at the year ahead to say, Lord, what are your purposes for us as a church? How are we to serve your kingdom and serve your mission and to serve our neighbors? And, and so it's a time for us to ask, what is the church's mission? And there's a, a summary there in verse 23 when Jesus said to his disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And we'll come back to that verse during the sermon. But, but what this tells us that the mission of the church is that God is reconciling the world to himself through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. That's what the mission is. God is reconciling the world to himself. We are a people who've been welcomed and embraced by God. We've been adopted into his family. And so we are a people who then extend the welcome and embrace that we've received from God to our neighbors and to the community around us. And so that's why, you know, our church's logo is the table. 
And the table represents this table that we come to every week that God has intimately brought us as his children to his table. He's welcomed us in and he feeds us. And so that makes us rethink our tables at our home to say, oh, this is a place where God is going to show his hospitality through us. We're going to welcome our homes and our lives and our families uh, uh, to others who are, who are outside of our community. And so I think in the, in the months ahead, we need to continue to recalibrate what our mission is as a church. And uh, you might hear that and think, well, didn't we just say that we've, it's been a hard year and it's been a trial and aren't we weakened? Is this a good time to re-up on mission? I mean, isn't it a time to rest and to recuperate? Well, in this passage that we're looking at today, when Jesus gives his disciples their mission, they are weakened as well. Jesus has just been crucified. There's threats on every side around them. And you see how this passage starts in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The disciples are hiding out in fear. And it's in the midst of this weakness and fear that Jesus speaks his peace over them and gives them their mission. And so my hope for us today is that Jesus would speak his peace over us and also remind us of our mission as a church. And so today I want to point out four truths from this passage about what the mission of the church is. This is what the four truths are. That the mission begins with worship. The mission focuses on the gospel. The mission follows the pattern of Jesus. And the mission is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Submission, it begins with worship, it's focused on the gospel, it follows the pattern of Jesus, and it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. Just four fundamental truths about the, uh, the mission of the church. So what is the mission of the church? Four things this morning. The first is this. Mission begins with worship. Mission begins with worship. And you see that in the first verse there, verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week... The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Now a few things about this first verse is that first it's on the, the day of resurrection, the first day of the week, which is Sunday. And the disciples are all gathered together and then, uh, then Jesus is there uh, in their midst. And this event sets the pattern for Christians throughout the history of the church. This is exactly what we're doing today. It's Sunday, the day of resurrection, where the disciples gathered together. Jesus is here in our midst, and he's speaking his peace over us and saying, peace be with you. And, um, you know, if I could do just a kind of nerdy side note on this. I know some of you will wonder about this passage. It says that the doors were locked, and then Jesus shows up in the doors. Actually, in the next passage we'll look at next week, the same thing happens. The doors are locked, and Jesus shows up. How did he get in the room? And one thing we know it can't be, it can't be that Jesus was a ghost who kind of can pass through walls because he was physical. We know that he ate fish, and he had the disciples touch his hands and his side to say, I am not a spirit. I've heard one pastor say that Jesus got in the room because he had a key, which I thought was kind of a lame way to answer it. So I'm going to give you my speculation on how did Jesus get in the room. And, um, and the answer, I think, is that the new creation that began with Jesus' body being raised from the dead joins heaven and earth together. In Jesus' person, heaven and earth are one. 
And heaven is not like this place on the you know, other side of the universe, if you travel really far. Heaven is more like another dimension. It's like the dimension where God lives. Earth is where humans dwell. Heaven is where God dwells. And it's like in, a, in another dimension. And, uh, and so when you can go into other dimensions, like the risen Jesus can, because he's in heaven and earth. He passes in and out of heaven and earth. When you can go into other dimensions, you can take shortcuts. So a little, little math aside for you. I was a mathematician before I was a pastor. So if you, for example, lived in two dimensions on this piece of paper and you wanted to get from this side of the paper to the other side of the paper, you'd have to walk all the way across the piece of paper. But if you could go into a third dimension and the paper was bent, you know, the two-dimensional person's got to stay on the paper. But here you can cross over into another dimension and you take a shortcut and you can get to the other side quickly. So how did Jesus get in the room? He went through the other dimension. He took a shortcut in there. Now, I know you hear that. You say, this is, what does this have to do with anything? Well, it actually is very relevant to this first point that mission begins with worship. Because in worship, heaven and earth are being brought together. Actually, if you read Hebrews, Hebrews says that when we gather for worship, we are in the company of innumerable angels and all the spirits of the redeemed who've been made perfect, and we are in the presence of Jesus himself. And you say, where are they? They're in the other dimension. You can't see them, but they're here. You are among them. And, uh, and Jesus tells us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what our mission is, is about heaven coming to earth. And the reason our mission begins with worship is because this is the place where we enter into heaven and meet the risen Jesus who has already united heaven and earth in his person. And we get really close to that other dimension. And what happens when you get really close to the heavenly dimension? Well, the passage tells us in verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What happened when they were close to heaven and earth meeting was joy. That's what it was, is their fear was taken away and they were clothed with joy for their mission. And that's exactly what we do every Sunday. We gather and Jesus shows us his hands and sides, right? We talk about the gospel every week, his body broken, his blood shed. He shows us his hands and his side and the hearts of the disciples are glad and we're glad and we have joy. His grace gives us joy. And so God does his mission not by making us a bunch of slaves that he's going to work to death, but we meet with him and the gospel of grace gives us joy so we want to serve him. And if we, you know, one point about this is this is why our church thought that it was so crucial for us to start meeting again back in August. That's why it's so important for us now and we can't underestimate how important for it is for us to be here in this room in the presence of the risen Jesus and in the presence of one another because worship is the engine of our whole life together. Worship is the engine of our joy that empowers our mission. And if we're not gathered together in worship in the presence of the risen Jesus, we will not have the joy that is the only energy and power to enable us to do God's mission. So the first thing is that mission begins with worship. I mean, gathering as the disciples and Jesus in our midst, speaking peace over us. Second truth from this passage is that mission starts, uh, sorry, mission focuses on the gospel. Mission focuses on the gospel. And the gospel is that Jesus is the true king of the world. 
The humanity has been in rebellion against her creator. And Jesus has come to give an open offer to all people everywhere of pardon and to have their sins forgiven and welcomed into God's kingdom and to be at peace with God and, and to live with him forever. And the, the forgiveness comes through the death of Jesus on the cross. And you can see that those two things of peace with God and forgiveness are the focus of this passage, right? Twice Jesus says in the end of verse 19, peace be with you. And then verse 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. That's peace with God. He's offering them peace with God. And then he talks about forgiveness in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And so why does Jesus focus his mission on peace with God and the forgiveness of sins? I mean, you think about all the problems in the world. There's poverty and addiction and there's depression and abuse and absent fathers and there's wars and there's oppression. Why does he make why doesn't he make the most important thing feeding people who need food or making hospitals for people who are suffering or counseling centers for people who are in addiction or bringing great education to underprivileged communities? Jesus wants us to do all those things, but they aren't the main issue here. Why does Jesus put at the center of the mission the offer of having your sins forgiven? Well, let me give you one practical answer. You know, increasingly our society is aware of shame being at the root of many human problems. Anyone who works with poverty or addiction or abuse will find that shame is a major factor in these issues. And what's the thing that deals with shame? The grace and love and forgiveness of Jesus. So the gospel gets to the core of the human condition. And, you know, doctors know that it's extremely important to distinguish between treating symptoms and diagnosing a disease. You know, if you have a person with pounding headaches and uh, severe headaches and you give them pain relief and it turns out they have a brain tumor and the pain goes away and the tumor just keeps growing and they never knew about it, you've not helped that person. You need to find out what, the, you need to diagnose the disease, the underlying problem. Is it possible that all these other issues, broken homes, poverty, oppression, addiction, isolation, depression, are symptoms, but not the actual disease. Maybe even shame is a symptom, but not the disease. Jesus is saying here the real disease is our sins have separated us from God, and forgiveness gives us peace with God and reconciles. Forgiveness deals with the root problem. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this in, in Mere Christianity. I'll, I'll, I'll read with you a, a, a paragraph from that. This is what Lewis says. He says, God made us, invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, or the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about religion. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There is no such thing. That is the key to history. Terrific energy is expended. Civilizations are built up. Excellent institutions devised. But each time something goes wrong. Some fatal flaw always brings the selfish and cruel people to the top, and it all slides back into misery and ruin. In fact, the machine conks. 
It seems to start up all right and runs a few yards and then it breaks down. They are trying to run it on the wrong juice. Mission focuses on the gospel because the gospel gets to the root of the human condition. And we are an institution whose whole existence is about shaping people in the grace of the gospel. And it's amazing that the way that Jesus gives his grace into forgiveness uh, to people is through the church. That's how people learn about God's grace. You see what he says in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if the church withholds uh, forgiveness from people, if they're excluded from the family of God, this is a statement from God of being excluded from his presence. And, And this doesn't mean that we have the power to forgive people. Jesus alone forgives people, but he has given us authority to announce that forgiveness to people. We represent Jesus to people. And so that leads to the third insight about mission. So what we've seen so far is that mission begins with worship. Worship is the engine that drives our whole mission. And then it focuses on the gospel. It's gospel alone that gets to the root condition of of humanity. But the third point is that mission follows the pattern of Jesus. Mission follows the pattern of Jesus. And you see that there, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the Father sent Jesus, Jesus sends you and me. And our mission is an extension of Jesus' mission. And how was Jesus sent by the Father? What was, what was the pattern? Well, in the Gospel of John that we've been studying, you see a pattern. And the pattern is always that teaching, word, and deed go together. So, for example, uh, Jesus will feed 5,000 people who are hungry. And then he has a teaching that goes with that. You know, that's a good deed to care for people. And then he has a teaching that goes with it. I am the bread of life. Or he'll say, I am the light of the world. And then he heals a blind man. Or Jesus says, uh, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. Together, it's teaching and care for people that go together. It's word and deed. The Father sent Jesus in word and deed. He sends us in word and deed. And you might hear that and say, well, I thought you said that people just need the gospel. They need their sins forgiven. Uh, No good, they don't need good deeds to help their lives. Well, if we go back to the doctor analogy, a doctor needs to distinguish symptoms from an underlying disease and make sure they are treating the disease. But that doesn't mean they don't treat the symptoms. If you have someone who's suffering, yeah, you want to find out what the underlying disease is, but it'd be cruel to just leave them in their pain if you had a way to relieve that suffering. And so you, you deal with the disease and you try to relieve the symptoms at the same time. And so the church is the body of Christ, continuing Jesus' mission of the word of the gospel that's getting to the root in the deed that is relieving people's suffering. And I think we should appreciate the institutional nature of the church that Jesus started. Sometimes we can think of Jesus as kind of a, like a hippie sage who had these truths about, you know, people just loving each other. And, and, and so when we think of the institution of the church, we think, oh, the institution of the church, that was just power-hungry people who twisted Jesus' words and started this institution. But Jesus' thing was just as much more, you know, organic kind of thing that's, that wasn't so institutional. And I don't think that's true at all. The Bible is clear Jesus was a king. 
And kings have officers, they have an administration, and effective kings build a network of leaders who are invested with authority and put into effect their decrees. That's what kings do. And this is exactly what Jesus has done in the church. And it's pretty beautiful that here in this passage are all these disciples who abandoned Jesus when he was about to be crucified. And here they are, here Jesus is, he reinstalls them as his apostles. And he says, I give you authority to declare my forgiveness to the nations. And it's amazing. The forgiveness that they're receiving on the spot right here is the same forgiveness they're going to then go give to people. And Jesus says in other places that what his disciples, his authorized representatives bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And what they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He gives to his church the keys of the kingdom. And so as popular as it is to say, you know, people say, well, you know, I'm a very spiritual person, but I don't believe in organized religion. As if to say we prefer a disorganized religion. And when someone says they don't believe in organized religion, it's not that they want disorganized. What they want is religion that is individual, it's personal, and it's private. It's not shared with anyone else. You just keep it to yourself. And there's no way Jesus' kingdom could be like that because Jesus' kingdom is about love. And love cannot just have one person. You can't just keep love by yourself. It wouldn't be love if you just kept it to yourself. Love is going to build communities like our community. It's going to build families. It's going to draw people in. Love is also not just going to leave the, way, the world the way it is. It's going to say we want to see the world bettered. We want to see the world transformed by the grace and love of Jesus. And so if the body of Christ is going to have any meaningful impact on this world, it must organize as an institution. And I fully believe Jesus intended it to be that way. And if I could tell you what my dream for Christ Church Bellingham would be, is that we are building institutions of word and deed that would far outlast any of our lives. We as a church are building institutions that shape people in the grace and truth of Jesus. That's what worship is. You think of these, these services. People come here and they serve and they use their gifts. And we gather together and uh, we draw people in to form them in the grace and love of Jesus. That's what our home groups and our discipleships groups are. People are entrusted with leadership and responsibility to invest and care for other people and to read books together and to teach together. That's why, why we plant churches, to plant more institutions like this. This is why we have a school to care for children uh, in our community to form them in the grace of Jesus. And this word indeed mission is not given to any of us as individuals. It is given to the body of Christ, to the church. Now for some of you, when you hear the word institution, that sounds like a dead word. And you might think that when the church becomes too institutional, it becomes lifeless and impersonal and mechanical. And I think that's a very valid concern. Uh, that's why Christians have always said that the church is both an institution and an organism. It's an institution. It's like a house that has a foundation. It has a structure to it. And you're building something. And, but it's also an organism. It's a body. It is a living thing. And so the church has to be institutional if it's going to organize people to do Jesus' mission. But institutions have a tendency to lose their life. And so that's why we need our final truth from this passage. Is, so we've seen that the worship begins with, uh, mission begins with worship. Uh, the mission is focused on the gospel. The mission follows the pattern of Jesus in word and deed. But the fourth point is that mission is empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, God himself, is the life of our body, our institution. 
And you see that there in verse 22, and it says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus knows that his disciples cannot do this mission on their own power, their own wisdom, their own ingenuity, their own creativity, their own goodness. Everything that we will do as a church will be a work of God by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the giving of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is always tied to mission. It's tied to, like in the book of Acts, when the church was first formed, Jesus, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The whole point of the Holy Spirit coming was to empower them for a mission. And if you go back in the Old Testament and you see when the Holy Spirit would come upon God's people in the Old Testament, it was always so like, you know, they were going to be in a uh, in a battle and defeat God's enemy and, or, you know, Samson was on a road and a lion came up to him and the Holy Spirit came upon him and he rips the lion apart with his bare hands and he's like, the Holy Spirit enables people to, think, to, people to do things that they could not have done on their own strength. That is the Spirit that is upon us. And so Jesus breathes on his disciples the Holy Spirit. He's breathed on us too. If you are in Christ, you have a power at work in you. You have the love of God poured into your heart. You have gifts to make useful for the king. And what gives life to the institution is that our mission is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and one of the things I love about Jesus breathing on the disciples is it goes again back to the creation story. When God first made humanity, made Adam, it says that God breathed on him and he became a living being. And when, we, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we become a part of God's mission, we are finally becoming what we were made for. And so why should you care about God's mission in the world? Why should you be part of it? Because when you enter into worship with the disciples of Jesus and hear his peace spoken over you, when you understand the gospel that despite all your sins, Jesus has forgiven you and made you a part of his kingdom. When you realize that God the Father sent Jesus and so he's sending you in the same pattern of word and deed. And he's going to do that by filling you with the power of the Holy Spirit. So all of your personality and talents are now put in service to Christ. When all this happens in your life, you are becoming what you were originally made for. And despite the hardship of this past year, we have a mission. And God always calls us in the midst of weakness. As the Apostle Paul said, we have this treasure of the gospel in jars of clay. We are jars of clay. We are weak. We are fragile to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. May the Lord build his kingdom here and may he show his surpassing power in us for his own glory. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you that uh, this mission that it be began so many centuries ago and yet amazingly has reached across the globe. We were the ends of the earth to Jesus and his disciples. It has come to us and you have rescued us and you've forgiven us and you've adopted us and brought us into your family. You've welcomed us. Would we as a church be to a place of welcome? Would you put us on mission? Would you make us useful for your kingdom? 
And would you give us strength in the life of your Holy Spirit? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.